As we come now before the very Word of God, you can turn in your Bible if you'd like to read along with me to the book of James in chapter 3. We'll be here again in James, James 3. And as you turn there, would you please pray with me? Lord, we hear in your word in the book of Proverbs, uh, words that we want to become true of us. Would you bring us to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and to lean not on our own understanding, that in all our ways we would acknowledge you and you would make our paths straight. Lord, we know that your word is good and true and for the straightening of our paths Would you work this now in us? Open our minds to hear, our hearts to believe now by your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, This is James in chapter 3. I'll begin here in verse 13 and carry us to the end of the chapter. So James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast and be false in the truth. This isn't the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of God. Now, in this set of verses, James is speaking to us now of wisdom. And we want to take a particular look this morning at what James calls here the meekness of wisdom. You'll see that in verse 13, the meekness of wisdom. That will be our focus in just a few, uh, few minutes. But first, you may have noticed, if you listened carefully to this section, that James is actually contrasting two types of wisdom. A wisdom that's from above, and a wisdom that's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Now, usually when the scripture speaks of these two categories of things, they're described as wisdom and folly, or foolishness is the other type. That's the way uh, the Proverbs and, and other wisdom books often speak of it. But James describes both of these in terms of wisdom, and he's not the only one in the Bible who does this. Paul, for example, in the, the early chapters of 1 Corinthians, describes this second type of wisdom that's, that's worldly. But by calling this earthly wisdom a type of wisdom. James is clearly, you can tell from the context, not suggesting that we follow this earthly wisdom, uh, that this wisdom is good for us. He's just telling us that this is a certain type of framework for life. 
So if I can venture a definition of wisdom, this is not all my own, it's borrowed, but I'll use it because I think it's good. If I could venture a definition of wisdom, it would be this. Wisdom is skill in the art of living. I like that. Skill in the art of living. Which means then that a wisdom that's from above is skill in the art of living according to God. And wisdom that's earthly is skill in the art of living according to the world. Which means that the difference between these two wisdoms is not just that, that one has to do with the spiritual stuff, you know, the religious stuff, the high stuff, and the other stuff has to do with, you know, the practical knowledge of day-to-day -day earthly life skills. You know, I, I've heard, maybe you've heard this before, that, that knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, but wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. You know, it's wisdom. It makes sense. I don't want a tomato in my fruit salad. You know, this is sort of practical life knowledge, but that's not just the earthly wisdom. Both of, of these situations would, would talk about the whole pattern of life, which, which includes what we do with tomatoes and everything. It, both sorts of wisdoms are these frameworks that, that include all of our conduct, all of our choices, all of our values, all of our everything. And each form of wisdom, that which is above and that which is earthly, produces very different things in their practice. You may have noticed in the latter verses here, James gives characteristics that come out of each one. We're not going to unpack each of these characteristics. I could spend a whole sermon on each one of these particular ones, but I'm just going to leave them together as a bundle. But, but look at them as they're bundled. The wisdom that's, uh, that's earthly is described in verse 16. We see jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, and every vile practice. But in contrast, the above wisdom in verses 17 and 18, this big list, there's what's pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, sincere, and peaceful. It's clear that we want one of these and not the other. Now, to discern whether a thing is wisdom that's earthly or wisdom that's from above, it is helpful then to hold up uh, this set of characteristics that James has given us, uh, the sort of things that these, wisdom, these two wisdoms produce, and compare a particular situation to see which of them is more fitting. So, let me give you an example. Cancel culture. Everybody's talking about this all the time. I keep seeing news articles about it. Cancel culture, are you familiar with this as a term? Cancel culture. Uh, by this, just to clarify, I do not mean healthy disagreements. Those are good things. Those are scriptural things. And I also don't mean appropriate consequences for wrongdoing. But cancel culture is, is when a mob of folks, usually via Twitter or Facebook or some other social media avenue, try to cancel someone for something they've said or done, get them fired or ruin their reputation based on very little knowledge usually of the actual person or situation. That's what cancel culture is doing and it's happening a lot these days. Now, cancel culture in practice, when we look at the effects of it, we can compare these to these two wisdoms. And if we look at cancel culture and the way it plays out, cancel culture is often missing the traits of wisdom that comes from above. 
it's usually missing peace, missing reason, impartiality, gentleness, sincerity. Those things seem largely absent. And in contrast, we see more of the earthly wisdom products, things like disorder and selfish ambition. So in general, cancel culture is not something we want to pursue, not something we want to be part of. It is part of, generally, the wisdom that is earthly. Now, in discerning the difference between the wisdom that's from above and the wisdom that's earthly, discerning those things is not always clear. We need practice with this, uh, and sometimes advice, of course, the guidance of the Holy Spirit to do this. But in the moment, it can be easy to become confused and to be taken in by the wrong one. I'll give you another example. So maybe you're familiar with Pilgrim's Progress. I, I don't. Uh, no, I've mentioned it before. I'm one of those nerdy ones that likes to read old books. It's, a, it's an old uh, a fiction novel, if we can call that, from the 16th century. So how current is that? It's actually technically an allegory, Pilgrim's Progress is. And an allegory is when all the people and places within the story are representation of specific things. And so the author, John Bunyan, actually names the people and places after them. So you'll see this in just a moment. The main character in Pilgrim's Progress is, is, is a man named Christian. That's handy. And before the days in which he actually becomes a Christian, he lives in the city of destruction. And Christian comes across a book, which we can see as a reader is the Bible, but he comes across a book, and as he's reading it, Christian comes to realize that there is a large burden on his back. A giant weight, a big backpack full of things, which is the sense of his own sin, his own evil, his own coming judgment upon him from God. And so Christian is tormented by these things for a, for a good bit until he meets Evangelist, this guy uh, who uh, Evangelist then sends Christian on his journey, which is the rest of the story, to the celestial city. Uh, that's how the story plays out. But to get to the celestial city, he has to go through the wicket gate, Evangelist said, not wicked, Wicket, meaning really small. Look, you see over there, he says, there's the wicket gate. You need to go there. And when Christian goes through it, he eventually meets the cross of Jesus, where it's one of the loveliest parts of the story as he comes up to the cross of Jesus. Ooh, it's going to get me here on the spot. His burden just snaps loose and tumbles off his back and rolls into the grave, into the open tomb. Such a beautiful scene about the time in which Christian has, becomes a Christian, has new life then in Jesus, that his sin is forgiven. But before Christian gets to the cross, before he even gets to the wicket gate, he's intercepted by a man who's called Mr. Worldly Wise Man. And Mr. Worldly Wise Man shares with Christian some of his worldly counsel. A summary of what Mr. Worldly Wiseman says is this. He says, good fellow, whoop, <laughs> oops, that's how his voice sounds when I read it in my head. Good fellow, surely you must get rid of your burden. 
for how can you enjoy God's blessing with it? But why do you seek to ease your burden in this way? Well, through and beyond Wicked Gate, there are many troubles and dangers, and I see that you've been through many sorrows already, so let me help. I can get you what you desire without all the trouble. You see, near us in yonder village, Morality, at the first house you'll find a man named Mr. Legality and his son, Civility. They're skilled to cure you of your awful burden. In the town you'll find reasonable rates and available housing and cheap food and honest neighbors you can bring you and your wife and children and live a happy life all just over that hill. Go this way. And what Mr. Worldly Wiseman says makes a lot of sense to Christian. It seems wise. Why would a good God, after all, want me to be lumbering around with a big burden on my back? Wouldn't he want me to get it off? You know, there's even a church over there in morality where Mr. Worldly Wiseman goes. I could settle down and be moral, legal, civil, and all will be well. Christian believes what he's heard from Mr. Worldly Wiseman, as many people do, and so Christian follows the path that he's been guided toward this hill. But as it turns out, the way to the city of morality is not as easy as Mr. Worldly Wiseman has said. The hill over which he has to go turns out to be extremely treacherous. It's this big Mount Sinai with flashes of fire and thunder, and Christian nearly dies. Christian is rescued again by Evangelist, the guy who pops back into his life, and he tells Christian that Mr. Legality is a cheat, his son's civility is a hypocrite, and they have no good to offer him to actually get off his burden, and that the village morality actually lives very, very far from God and is full of people who are self-righteous and not full of faith in Jesus. So he sends Christian back on the path toward the wicked gate, where he will eventually meet Christ and the wisdom that's from above. It is easy for earthly wisdom, for worldly wisdom to take us in because it often makes sense on some level. But we pursue the wisdom that's from above. Now, all of this to say, in the city of morality, this is not the, the Christian for us that we care nothing about morality. Of course we do. We, we want to put faith in Jesus first, to be forgiven of sin, that, that is that we're not under the law. The hill of fire and thunder is not going to crush us because we're under grace in Jesus. But because of God's grace to us now, we present our lives to God in obedience, in a desire to follow after him, or in the words of, of James, who's wise and understanding among you, by his good conduct, let him show his works. That's part of the wisdom that's from above. So a wise man is shown by his good conduct. 
We want that. I want that for me and for you. Now, pivot. One of the ways in which our good conduct is expressed is at the end of verse 13. This will be our focus in the rest of the time. By his good conduct, let him show his works, here it is, in the meekness of wisdom. Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. What does that mean? What is, what is meekness? It's a strange word. It's not a word that we use very often. You might recognize meekness from, from other passages of Scripture where it shows up. So meekness is one of the blessings of the Beatitudes. You know, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness is also one or part of the fruit of the Spirit, uh, that it's, it's often translated in that bundle as gentleness. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness or meekness, and self-control. But what does it look like, okay, whether we recognize it or not, what does it actually look like in practice to be meek? If you're reading along with me in other English translations, you might notice that the word shows up not as meek, meekness here, but maybe in English as humility, or, or as the gentleness of wisdom. And I, I'm not convinced that either one of those is quite the best word for this. Partly because when we compare uh, this to other parts of the Bible, Jesus is described as having meekness and gentleness. And Christians are called to put on meekness and humility, which, which seems to suggest that humility and gentleness are related to meekness, but they're not the same thing. Humility has more to do with lowliness. It's a good thing in the scripture. It's just not quite what meekness is. Humility has to do with lowliness. Gentleness has to do with being tender. Now, where does meekness fit into this? Meekness, at least in my mind, because it's not a word that I use very often, instantly brings up meek and mild. You heard that phrase? I think there's even a song about Jesus being meek and mild. And, and I don't, I'm not sure if that helps or hurts me in my understanding of it, because mild, when I hear that, I think of non-spicy salsa, which I like. I like non-spicy salsa. But, uh, you know, for some people, then mild gives us this impression of, like, just mushy, flavorless tomatoes with maybe a pepper in there, you know? And, and who wants to be like that? At least I don't, okay? That's not quite what we're after here. Meek sounds like a bad thing sometimes in some of our minds. Here's my best attempt to define what it means to be meek. It is close to gentleness. This isn't quite the definition. It's close to gentleness, but it's more than that. I ended up having to give it a hyphenated description, sort of like God's loving kindness, you just mush loving and kindness together and we get a new thing, his loving kindness. Meekness, here's my best attempt. I define as meekness is gentle force. Odd as that sounds, I know. Meekness is gentle force. By which I mean it is a type of power that comes through gentleness. 
Meekness is not a lack of power. That's weakness. Meekness is also not a loss of power. That's weariness. Meekness is tamed power. That is a type of controlled strength that comes from God. And in that context, I hope you can see that this is a lot better than a bunch of mushy tomatoes. I actually want gentle strength. I can see the good in that. I can see the wisdom in that. This is something that we want to be produced in us. So now, in the rest of our time, how does the meekness of wisdom, that is the gentle force of wisdom, how does that play out? I want to give you briefly three expressions of meekness and then one example of meekness. Three expressions and one example. Here's the first expression. We want to see gentle force or meekness when you are correcting opponents. We need gentle force when we are correcting opponents. Paul writes this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. You'll hear the word meekness or a version of it. Verse 24, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness or meekness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So we are to be correcting opponents with gentleness or with meekness is the word here. Some people's approach to correcting opponents or some people's approach to disagreement is you, you either got a bully or you get bullied. You bully or you get bullied. But gentle force does neither of those things. Gentle force is not a pushover, but neither does gentle force push others over. Now, to be clear, this does not promise that our opponent will change or that they'll be convinced or come to agree with us. We know only God grants repentance, says Paul here. But if we're really the ones that hold to what is true, if we are really the true ones in the disagreement, we don't need to be threatened. The truth will get lost. We don't need to get louder. We don't need to start a fight over it. We need gentle force in our correction. That's the first expression. Here's the second. We need gentle force when you are restoring from sin. Gentle force in restoring from sin. Galatians chapter... mm, Let me find it. Chapter 6, verse 1. Paul says this, Brothers, if anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual 
should restore him in a spirit of gentleness or meekness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. So we are to restore others who are caught in transgressions in a spirit of meekness. We know that sin is incredibly strong and strangling. If you've ever fought to put your own sin to death, you know what this is like. Sin is like a hungry vortex that can suck in anyone that gets near it. And so if we have any shot at rescuing a person from the ongoing pull of sin, we need strength of our own to help them. We need powerful force to do that. And yet at the same time, that power, that force needs to be tamed with gentleness. Because a person who is stuck in ongoing sin will often get defensive, get angry, become scared, maybe even attack you. A person stuck in sin is like an abused dog who will snap at anyone who comes close. So in order to restore a person from sin, it takes a strong and gentle hand. A hand that's not condemning. A hand that's not judgmental. But is full of the grace of Jesus. We need gentle force of wisdom in our restorations. That's the second. Here's the third and final expression We need gentle force when we are weary. We need gentle force when we are weary. Let's hear from Jesus. You'll recognize these words, I'm sure. Matthew chapter 11. He says, this is part of a longer series, but picking it up in verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, or meek, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Expressions of gentle force are not passive things. They're very difficult. Gentle force is is hard work. And if you try to accomplish this by your own strength, by way of Mr. Legality, or civility, or morality, or otherwise, you will only end up with the hill that crushes you. We have to remember that Jesus is not a slave driver. He's a shepherd. 
Jesus is a shepherd and a good shepherd. So he calls us to meekness. That is, he wants gentle force to be part of our lives, even in the midst of our weariness. But the source of it is that he himself is meek. He is the one who sustains our our meekness by way of his rest. We need, we want gentle force in our weariness by way of Jesus. Those are the three expressions now to take us home here. I said I'd give you one example of meekness, and of course we want to use Jesus, the perfect picture of this. You know, today is a special day in the life of the church. Today is the day we celebrate Palm Sunday, and, uh, and, and that's just the classic picture of Christ's meekness, of his gentle force. Palm Sunday is the first day of the week in which Jesus eventually will be crucified on that Friday. And Jesus is the only one that knows that this is coming for him, at least this week. And so on this Palm Sunday, on the first Palm Sunday, we see Jesus entering into Jerusalem around the coming of the Passover. And and as he comes in, there are all these palm branches waving in the air. The people are celebrating. They're laying down their cloaks on the ground before him. And they're crying out the famous words, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us. They're proclaiming Jesus as the coming king of Israel. The promised king of the Jews is now here. And we, we know their shouts of praises are fitting to Jesus. He says, if I were to hush the people, then the stones would cry out. So we're told then as Jesus enters into the city with all these cloaks down and palm branches, that he comes meek and mounted on a donkey. That's the description of the way he comes. Meek and mounted on the donkey. Now he comes riding in on this donkey. The donkey here is not just an expression of lowliness, of humble lowliness, nor is it just an expression of gentle tenderness. It's a show of gentle force. The donkey, for a rider who is a king, is a sign of victory that comes by way of peace, not war. Not not riding on the battle horses, riding on the donkey. Victory by way of peace. As Jesus comes in riding on a donkey, we're told that this is a fulfillment of what the prophets have said. Specifically referring to the prophet Zechariah, which he says in Zechariah 9, 9, listen to these old words. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, meek and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the very ends of the earth. Jesus now comes as the fulfillment of this old prophecy. He comes 
as this new king, not only over Israel, but his rules from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And Jesus comes then, not by way of brute force, not with chariots, no war horse, no battle bow. He's not overthrowing the Romans and tossing out Caesar. It's not brute force. It's by gentle force. That is the power of gentleness, the meekness of wisdom. And it showed this way in that Jesus died. Days after he comes riding in as the king on a donkey, he submits himself willingly to the death on a cross. And while a series of Mr. Worldly Wise Men scoffed, they watched and laughed and mocked and said, this man could save others and he can't even save himself. These people did not know the wisdom that comes from above. That is, that by his own death, Jesus would take upon himself the wrath for sin so that all who put faith in him would not know that wrath. And he would bring it to the grave, putting it to death, and then in rising that he would hold the very keys of death in his victory over it. Behold then your King Jesus. He reigns in the meekness of wisdom. And now as his people, we're to walk in the meekness of wisdom too. Would you pray with me? Lord, we long to be made like this, that we would be a people who are wise and understanding. Would you make us wise with a wisdom that is from above? That is, would you give us the meekness of wisdom that comes through Jesus so that we would be wise in correcting opponents and restoring from sin and even in dealing with our own Weariness, Lord, we trust your gentle force. Would you do this mightily, gently in us? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.